0: If you had 15 minutes to read all of the Old Testament, which, as you know, is impossible, I would uh, suggest that you read the book of Malachi because it is kind of a synopsis of all but a few of the major themes in the Old Testament. Um, it's a summary of sorts. I'm not saying you should read it in lieu of the Old Testament, but it is in a, a, a way a great, uh, again, um, just a Cliff's Notes uh, version. So Malachi 3.7 is where we'll begin. This is really a summary of the minor prophets in general and the book of Malachi in particular. So this is where uh, I want to start. This is what the Italian prophet gives us. I gave you a second opportunity to laugh. Don't you think Malachi sounds Italian? No? Okay, all right. Yeah, oh, I see. Okay. So here we go. Since the days of your fathers... You've turned from my statutes. You have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. How many of you appreciate those words of our Father God? Return to me, and I'll return to you. Sounds like a great deal, doesn't it? Let's pray. Father, I just ask as we get in your scriptures today that you will uh, sensitize us, Lord. Lord, let this be raw. Let us take offense. Let us be nudged. Let us be urged. Let us be conformed to your likeness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So another uh, important point that we might uh, start out with is that Malachi is the last time that God's going to say anything, at least to a prophet in a way that was canonized into the scriptures for 400 years, 400 years. Theologians call the period of time between when Malachi wrote and when Jesus was born the silent years where man didn't really hear from God, at least not in an inspired way as to result in authorship of Scripture, and then the next time uh, God speaks, of course, he's introducing his son into the world. So I think this reading that we're going to take in this morning is going to reverberate in a nation's heart for really some 400 years uh, until Christ. And and in this book, we're going to see these charges presented. If you're a prosecutor, you uh, give to the court charges that you're uh, leveling. Or rather, if you're law enforcement officers, you're leveling charges uh, against a citizen. And so we're going to see some charges uh, leveled against Israel, this nation, because of her persistent unfaithfulness. And then we're going to see a solution that God has for Israel and, I hope, by application, us all. So let's see what they're, they've been charged with. It's now about, uh, by way of background, 170 years since Habakkuk. So we wait a week, and they waited 170 years okay between these two uh, authors that we are looking at 170 years by now uh, Habakkuk was prophesying captivity's coming by now um, captivity has already happened and the nation of Israel has found its way back into its homeland and has been there for roughly a hundred years um Remember uh, that we didn't choose to, to look at every minor prophet, only five of them. So, so it's not necessarily that the scriptures uh, don't record uh, times in between the times of, of captivity and release from captivity, um, but I'm giving you a, sort of, a, again, Cliff's Notes um, version or, or look at this. So God returns his people home to the promised land. They get back they undergo um, what would be called like a nationalist revival. Everybody is so grateful that God is with the people again, that the people are with God again. And these are the times where Ezra wrote. These are the times where Nehemiah constructed his wall. There's fervor again in the hearts and mind, minds of God's people. However, within really a single generation, um, it all comes kind of cracking and, and, and tumbling down. And the people's hearts drift away again. What did not wear off and what seldom wears off is their religiosity. They were very faithful church attenders, the Israelites. Um, it's reminiscent of, uh, we, we have our warts in evangelicalism too, believe me. But the Pennsylvania revelation of of this Catholic diocese involved in the sexual abuse of over a thousand kids over a few decades by 300 and some priests. And the cover up is an absolutely tragic example of men whose hearts grew dark and yet were extremely committed publicly. In fact, it was during Malachi's time that two groups kind of found their startup. These entrepreneurs say, "Hey, let's really invest in the pursuit of religion." And so the Sadducees and the Pharisees started forming huddles and, and meeting together. And of course, these are those that Jesus would 400 uh, or uh, yeah, roughly 400 years later refer to as, do you remember, white-washed tombs. In first service, I noted that I was wearing white. Incidentally, it made me a little nervous. But Jesus said, on the outside, they look clean and beautiful. On the inside, they're rotting corpses. They're dead men's bones. Um, I will tell you that this is the time that Malachi is writing. And I think that context is important. People are not close to God, but they're very religiously active. Malachi says this, to religious people who are self-seeking, chapter 1, uh, verse 13, he says, and I'll just paraphrase, he says, you give, but in your heart, you secretly say, what a burden this is, this is too tough, and you bring stolen, lame, sick animals, God says, am I to accept that from your hands? Did I mention this sermon was going to perhaps be offensive? The Israelites' worship was half-hearted in that they gave to God things that did not cost them anything. They gave to God their leftovers. They gave to God not out of sacrifice, but out of their excess. Our missionaries know this process well. One missionary said, when you're a missionary, you constantly have people giving you the leftovers of their lives. They say, quote, I got a new computer, so here's my 10-year-old one, End quote. And I have verified that principle with my own eyes. If you've been to King's Castle, if you've worked in their warehouse, you see pallet on top of pallet on top of pallet of what? 10- to 20-year-old computers, that Americans didn't want anymore, so they graciously, generously donated them. Along with lots of clothes from the eighties. <laughs> Not these clothes. Along with uh food. It's outdated. Whose expiration dates are are long past. Um along with flip phones that have dial pads, if any of you have a hankering for for one of those. Um, Malachi's point is simply this. What does it say to, to God when we upgrade our homes and upgrade our lives and then offer him what has no value to us? What does that communicate to the Father? And let me ask you, do you give God your first? Do you give God your best? Or do you give him your leftovers? Does what you give God cost you something, truly? Or do you not even say, ouch, does it not even pinch C.S. Lewis said one of the only ways to know your giving is where it should be is that it changes your lifestyle. Until it gets to that point, you're not giving in faith. What if you come on to some unexpected money? What, what do you do with that? What's the first place some of that goes? And don't just think about resources. Think about your time. Where's, a, where's the best and first part of your day go? What about the best part of your career? is it climbing the proverbial ladder or is it investing in co-workers and trying to strategi- strategically posit into their hearts the gospel the good news that Jesus brings second samuel 24:24 24, 24, you may recognize this one says it directly i will not give unto the lord that which costs me nothing And so, Lord, our first prayer this morning on this first point is to help us be generous people as a lifestyle. Lord, let us not scratch our back with notions of goodness when we give away things we no longer want. Let us not be pharisaical in the way that we are generous. Let us be truly heartfelt, sacrificial in the way that we give our lives Away, Help us crush the sin of greed in our hearts. In Jesus' name. Malachi, I'm sure they hoped he was done, but he continued to speak to a people who was religious but self-centered. And this was demonstrated by their behavior in marriage. He continues. And this second thing you do, verse 13 of chapter 2, it's like, Easier for pastors uh, to make an outline, a sermon outline, by the way, when, when the author says, and the second thing you do is cake at that point. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Here's why. Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? Malachi asks. And what was the one God seeking, I would insert, in placing man and woman together? And then he answers his own question Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in spirit. Do not be faithless. So here's what's happening in the context. Just a few verses earlier in chapter 2, you see that. The Jewish men had eyes for foreign women. And instead of marrying their own, and instead of being satisfied with the wives of their youth, they looked elsewhere to greener pastures. uh, pastures. Some of them divorced their own wives to marry um, those of another nation. And God confronts these men. And this can happen, of course, as you know, to men uh, or women. God confronts them by saying, first, your marriage was a sacred covenant between you and I. Don't take it half-heartedly, or my grandpa would say half something else. Keep it holy. Keep it pure. Continue to cherish it. Continue to value it. And in second, he says, one of my primary intentions, I love this verse. One of my primary intentions in your marriage is to raise up godly kids for the next generation. But you, Malachi says, you've started to look at marriage as if it were all about you, your wants, your desires. And I would tell you practically, in in my experience, divorce is not usually the problem. Divorce is the root of the problem, generally speaking, of a self-bent, a self-turned, a self-centered life. On the party of one member in the home, on the other part, or both. And people go into marriage looking for something to completely make them happy. And when that person gets difficult to live with, they begin to think Uh, Something else might be a bit better. And I'll tell you that this attitude affects parenting. And a wise person said most people don't want a kid. They want an accessory. That is so true. We want something to complete this picture-perfect view so that we might be respectable citizens, so that we might have credibility, so that we might be honored in the public square. I will tell you that nationally there is a growing trend to treat children and dogs in the same conversation. Church family, children are not dogs. I think you understand this. I think you know this. God created humanity with a soul that he could regenerate and shape and change. Not so. With fluffy, honest, Seattle has more dogs than children. My buddy preaches in Austin, Texas, and, and, he, and it's a heavy dog culture, not a heavy marriage culture. And they invite the dogs, and the dogs come and sit beside the parishioners on the sidewalk and watch through the open wall the church service. All good, all missional, all trying to reach a, a people that's lost. But I'm telling you this, in general, in general, a society that has less children is more selfish. Need I get into adoption and foster care? which Christians used to be the vanguard for. They'd carry the torch, they'd set the example, and here we are, step in step with the world. And the rates at which the world responds, how could that be as people who have been saved by Jesus, one who had an adoptive father in Joseph? Why do people have less kids? Well, of course, because kids are inconvenient. Have you not noticed They mess up your life. We should start nicknaming our kids Hawaiian Vacation. That's how much they cost. Seriously, Shelby Mustang. Come here, little cabin up north. Time for breakfast land in Buffalo County. (laughs) I'm not here to judge your heart. I'm here to apply the scriptures to our, our lives. Let me ask you this question. What's your motive for children? Is it to make you good and wholesome and put together and a family man? Or is it about reaching people who are lost long after you're gone with the love of Jesus Christ? And how does that inform the way you parent? And how do you determine the number? Because marriage and family are not about us. They are about God. My wife just walked in. She'll be glad to hear this confession. I'm sorry, honey. (laughs) Yesterday, she and I drove down to Adam and Stacy's Adam just lost his dad to cancer, his father, Gene's um, memorial service, and Adam, our music pastor of four to five years, um, was was there, and Shannon's mom took the girls, we were so grateful for that, and we just had the boys, and she would tell you that yesterday was not my best day as a dad, or as a husband, I had arguing boys in the back of the minivan, toys were flying, and food was flying, and they thought the church was a ball field, and and I responded on a number of occasions in ways that I am not proud of. That are embarrassing the next morning. And I'll tell you, kids are not convenient. Marriage is not convenient. But if we know God, we will stick it out in hard seasons For His glory and if we know it's about him and that it's not about us We will be able to love those that God has called us to serve in this life You will encounter things that make people in your life difficult to love Do you think it's always easy for God to love you? Is it just all rainbows and snuggles to God when he thinks of you? What are you saying, Zach? I'm saying God says in Malachi that he hates divorce because it tells the world a lie about his love toward his people. God's love is not premised on how sufficiently we meet God's needs. God's love is resolute, and parenting is a choice, and love is a choice, and marriage is a choice, and none of it at all times is glamorous. God, help us to choose love. Couples do not fall out of love. They fall out of repentance. They fall out of humbling themselves. They lose their focus. But pastor, we have irreconcilable differences. Shen and I have a number of irreconcilable differences. We can't get on the same page on some things. We continue to choose to love One another. Are some divorces exceptions? Absolutely, Jesus talks about them. I've preached on them. Let's talk about the majority of cases. Same thing in the abortion debate. What about the majority? That's what Malachi is addressing here. So the Israelites were religious but self-seeking in their offerings. Religious but self-centered in their marriages. Third, they were religious but unbelieving. Matthew 2, 17, you've wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, well, God, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Your words, the Lord says, have been hard against me. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Pastor, these verses are in contrast to what you said last week. You said God can handle it. You said God can take our anger. You said God can can stand up under our frustration. He absolutely can. But when it's perpetual and continual and doesn't cease, he grows weary of it. I think that's what these verses are teaching. After all that God done for the Israelites, they were still looking around saying, God, it's not fair. God, are you still there? Now keep in mind, God had delivered them from self-inflicted activity now twice. The Exodus and then uh, Babylon. And God says, still, you doubt my commitment to you. What more would I have done? I delivered you from Pharaoh's army without a single casualty. I led you through the wilderness by a cloud and and rained bread out of the sky, and I defeated enemies three times your height in stature. Then I explained to you that my ways are not your ways, but that you could always trust me, and I often tell you all. As I did last week, that's, again, okay to ask God questions, and it, and it is. But think of the words of J.C. Ryle. He said, in the light of the cross, the greatest insult you can give to God is to doubt his love for you. Maybe your doubt never drives you all the way to unbelief, but this perpetual second-guessing of God will absolutely dull your joy as his follower. It will mute your worship to him. Somebody here, as I was prayerful of this morning's time, I just sent somebody here needs to believe once and for all that God is a good, good father. And it doesn't matter what you've done, including not giving, divorce, anything else we've mentioned or will mention ever. His grace is sufficient. None of your bad can add up to his good. He's faithful. He forgives. He gives you second chance after second chance after second chance. I guess there's only one second chance. He gives additional chances. Seventy times seven, which was proverbial for unlimited chances, God gives if you just turn back to him. He turns back to us. Somebody here... God is saying to this morning, what else do I have to do to show you that I care? I brought someone in your life to share the gospel with you. I introduced you to a church family, to friends. You, you were drowning. Do you recall the valley that you found yourself in? you're no longer there. You're on the brink of all kinds of mishaps and mistakes and misfortunes. Why do you routinely put into question my character? Last one. By the way, if you're visiting this morning for the first time, we're in the minor prophets. They're a bit tough. They come down on us hard. I don't know that church is always like this. I don't think it is, but I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for it. Here's the last one. We're going to close um, with Malachi 3, verses 8 through 10. This is one of the famous passages in the scripture. Um, It's about not trusting God. They were irreligious, or rather religious, but untrusting. Religious, but untrusting. That's the last one. And specifically with money. Pastor, we've already talked about money. This is one of the famous passages in scripture about money. We can't miss it in the book of Malachi, chapter three, verses eight through ten. I would be doing you a disservice if I didn't read to you this morning this. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? Well, in your tithes and contributions. You're cursed with curse, for you are robbing me the whole nation of you bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test says the Lord of hosts if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need now you're going to hear this from another couple a lay couple in our church next Sunday during our bold moment if you want to hear it from anybody apart from the pastor and I'll tell you there's several dozen Uh, People in this church who would tell you the same thing but since it's my time up here this morning let me just uh, be very clear this is one of the most obvious explanations in scripture of how God feels about the Christian tithe what does tithe mean it's an easy one to remember because both of them start with a T tithe means one-tenth one-tenth of our income that God gives us We give back to him. Is it because he needs the money? Absolutely not. God owns it all. Cattle in a thousand hills. He uh, commands that we give it away for this reason and this reason alone because he wants us to declare in a physical, tangible way that we trust him. That is why. That's all that it is. And if I might be frank um, with you this morning in closing, I will tell you that tithing is one of the best indicators of whether or not we trust Jesus Christ. You can see he takes it very seriously. God says, when you don't do it, it's like breaking into my house and and robbing me. And I want you to know, I'm not bringing this up because the church is in need of money. By God's grace, we have not one unpaid bill we have, by his grace, en route to a new building on Highway 97, uh, almost uh, 325 or $350,000 in the bank that people have faithfully given to help us build a permanent home over there. We're not hurting or strapped for cash. I'm telling you this because we're working through books of the Bible, and this is what Malachi has to say this morning, and I would be unfaithful to not address it. So let me just be clear. I want to give you a few bold statements. Number one, giving is a barometer of your heart. Jesus said it himself. Where your money is, there your what is. Your, your heart is also. All we have to do is open our checkbook and look at what we've spent to know where our heart is. If you haven't begun to tithe, second strong statement, you have not been walking in faith with God, not fully. You may talk a big game, you may appear generous, but you've yet to fully trust Jesus. And I'll tell you this, third statement, everybody tithes to something. Fishing gear, vacationing, a savings account, it can even be at a great mode of security. For my family, we're going to save, we're going to hoard this all. For down the road when something hits. The question is not, is fishing okay? Let's talk about musky fishing. $18 lures. Yes, it's okay. You can go to the lake today and tell everybody, all your friends, that your pastor gave you permission to musky hunt. Jesus smiles upon it. Sorry, my musky hunt. <laughs> you know, that's not what I meant to say. Um, fish. Don't do that. Your pastor didn't endorse that practice. DNR will be there shortly. Um, you have you have you don't need my permission. You can do whatever you want. It's not a question of what you do. Please hear me. It's a question of what you do first. It's a question of first. Nothing wrong with fashion. We don't see a lot of it in central Wisconsin. Nothing's wrong with that. Nothing wrong with gas station sodas. Complete ripoff. Nothing's wrong with that, though. Buy the big bottle. Take it with you. You'll have several at $1.79. Nothing wrong with updating, with upgrading. The problem occurs when you do those things first first thing that God's people are to do with God's money is to give it away you may have wondered why things haven't stacked up financially you may have even felt like you were under a curse according to Malachi you were not far off some have said over the years we can't afford to give Shannon and I have have long taken the position, and I cannot take credit for this because I was raised this way, and every dollar I made an allowance, 10 cent had to go to church. And so it has been, as an adult, a very easy transition. We give away 10 to 15% of our income every year, year after year. But here's what I'll tell you. We feel like we cannot afford not to give. We know it's God's way. We know it's what he's asked for from the from the Burris family. So for the Burrises, it's first and it's regular and it's recurring and it's even automated. And and you know what? God, ha- we have never had a need. We don't, as a family, make a lot of money. I can tell you some things that would be embarrassing. And to, I'll just tell you this: we just stopped after ten years of marriage washing plastic bags and reason them you say you might say we've done that for 40 years of marriage that's good that's your thing but things have been tight at times things have been hard at times but god has never ever left us hanging and we're content we're so content so you're gonna hear again uh next week uh, another example from somebody on the ground so to speak Unless lots of people don't trust pastors. I do have your best interests at heart in the same way that I have our household's interests at heart when we give. You want to be generous, and I hope that you move beyond intent. So many people have such intent to be generous, move into action. God gave us permission to test Him. Father, in the conclusion of this... Um, study in five out of 12 minor prophetic books, not in that they are less important or less than, but in that they're short. They're a bite-sized chunk. I just pray, God, that you would humble us, that you would help us. I thank you, Father, that while I haven't, committed adultery, God, that I have at times been adulterous in heart. And Lord, you say that is significant. It is a sin. And God, for that, I have confessed. And I just say that example to say that all of us fall short of your glory. And I pray that there would not be a proud heart that would leave this place today and and give you a straight arm to keep you away from tackling them. I pray, Lord, that you would, in your great love for us, continue to show us what is for your glory and for our good, and it's in the great and mighty name of Jesus we pray today. Amen. Amen.